Hello, my name is Hannah Behrens. I'm the director of the Migration Policy Institute Europe based in Brussels. Um, and I would like to warmly welcome, welcome everyone to this webinar called Delivering on the Promise of Pre-Departure Counseling for Sustainable Reintegration. Before we launch into the discussion, uh, there's a few um, housekeeping notes that I would like to share with you. If you have any technical problems, please email uh, events at migrationpolicy.org. Um, we will have a Q&A session at the end of this webinar, and there will not be a voice Q&A, so if you do have a question that you would like to pose to some of our panelists, uh, please type those into the Q&A box or email them to events at migrationpolicy.org. Um, we'd like to signal to you that this webinar highlights some of the findings from our report, which is now available on the MPI website, leveraging uh, pre-departure counselling to supporting uh, returning migrants' sustainable reintegration, which is written by uh, one of our panellists, uh, Lucia Salgado, and she'll tell you a bit more about this work. Um, and I'm joined here today uh, by uh, four expert panellists. Um, and so before uh, I introduce them and ask them questions, um, I just wanted to, to, to sketch uh, why we're doing this um, at MPI, um, return and reintegration uh, of those who are staying irregularly or whose protection claims um, have been rejected, have been a top priority for uh, policymakers on, on both sides of the Atlantic over the past couple of years. And in Europe, this has really translated into a proliferation of programs that aim to assist with the reintegration of those returnees in um, their uh, countries and, and communities of origin. And today we would like to focus on one particular um, ingredient of that, uh, the pre-departure counselling. Why? Because fostering sustainable reintegration is really not an easy one. Migrants often return to really challenging circumstances and also the lives of the communities they were once part of have moved on. There's often also kind of a stigma uh, that follow the, follows them in terms of uh, a failed migration journey, and that in turn can hamper the degree to which they can start up a new life, find a job, uh, connect with former friends and, and, and family. And so um, there's been this, uh, as I said, this proliferation of, of reintegration programs that aim to assist returnees, whether it's to access a job or, or access healthcare. Um, but um, there's also this growing recognition amongst policymakers that pre-departure counseling is really quite an important dimension um, within these kind of programs. And why that is, we'll discuss with our panelists today. They will tell you a bit more as to what happens if there's no pre-departure counseling, what are some of the functions or the, or the values of it? Um, how has this translated in terms of particular programs that are now up and running uh, in, in Europe when it comes to return and reintegration? Um, and how to maybe look at some of the more innovative practices that we've seen appearing over the past months and years. So without further ado, I'll turn to the panelists who are the experts here uh, and who will help us with this discussion today. And uh, looking forward to the discussion. I'll first turn to Mr. Hajjaj uh, Mustafa. I hope I um, pronounce your name okay. Uh, you're a program executive at, um, of the reintegration program at the European Technology and Training Center, the ETCC. And and there, uh, you and your colleagues provide reintegration assistance in Iraq to returnees who come from different European countries. So, uh, Hajaj, I, I wanted to first ask you, maybe before we launch into all the, the values that are generated um, by pre-departure council, if you could tell us what happened when it doesn't occur, what, what happens to returnees if they're not properly counseled before departure? Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Good afternoon, everyone. Uh, thank you for the invitation. Uh, I hope I will put some uh, input in the, this webinar. Regarding your question, I think uh, this is uh, when we are talking about sustainability. First, we should focus on the uh, how we will make properly, we will arrange properly the returnee before departure. There is a lot of points which I would like to raise, but I think the, the time is for two, three minutes. It is not sufficient to put all the points, but at least I will put finger on some important uh, points. When we say that the returnee is not properly 
uh, organized before departure. So it means there is not sufficient counseling for the returnee. It means that the returnee, they don't get sufficient information about the country of origin, economically, security, uh, education, health, social, all other things. This is the first. Second, uh, lack of information about the program, the rules and procedures. So it means the returnee, they don't have sufficient information. How is the program is about? How is about the rules and the procedures? And the other point is it means that uh, they don't know about what services available under the program. So maybe when after departure, when they will return, they will ask for something which is totally different from the, the, the program. For example, they will ask for the cash, for example, or uh, they don't like to have a academic reintegration plan. So this is because of non-sufficient uh, information which he or she get from pre-departure. And uh, they don't have sufficient information about, for example, service provider. So maybe they don't have the contact number of service provider and they will lost the, the for example, ETTC uh, contact number. Then some other friends from Rutani, they will ask this guy, did you get a support? They will say, this is, they are lying. Sorry to say this word, they are lying and they will make mistrust between the host country and country of origin. So it means uh, we will, it will be disappear the trust between the member status and the ATTC uh, for the future. So it means the people, maybe they did, uh, the other returnee before departure, they will demotivate to, uh, to make a decision to return. Uh, and maybe uh, if they are not properly arranged, uh, so maybe they have a high expectation for everything uh, because they don't well understand about uh, the program. Uh, and again, ATTC will face a difficulty in arranging reintegration plan, concrete reintegration plan, uh, take a lot of time to understand the program. And maybe if we will make two, three, four sessions, they didn't believe us because they didn't properly get the information before departure. So it means uh, that we will make a lot of efforts uh, in order to uh, satisfy the returnee that this is the rules and the procedures for the program. So I think for one side, it is not easy to satisfy the returnee that this is our rules and procedures. So again, uh, and then of course, uh, always ATTC try that to, to, to uh, focus on pre-departure communication with the uh, caseworkers uh, in, the, the, in the host country in order to make a concrete uh, let's say to have a concrete information before departure, why we are always try to have a pre-departure uh, communication with the service provider through Skype, through uh, WhatsApp, through uh, Zoom meeting, any other things, at least even for five minutes to get trust uh, with the returnee in order to have uh, sufficient information before departure. Because many times, even after the returnee, they fill the application form in the uh, host country. Sometimes we get contact for returnee. Did you, for example, uh, ATTC? And they don't know about the ATTC. So they did maybe one session, two session in host country. They don't, what is ATTC about? Even they don't know the names. So I think again and again. So the, 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 the proper uh, counseling process before departure. I think this is the first start for the, if we were talking about sustainability, this is the issue that we should, put our finger and to stop on this point. So I think I don't want to have more time. I think two, three times. So uh, thank you very thank much. You. I... Yeah, no, I think that's really good. I mean, I think you outlined uh, both the implications for the returnee and the fact that there's a need to prepare for the return. I mean, there's also a growing recognition in this field that 
we need to make sure that this is not seen as an endpoint, but more as a kind of starting point also for both the returnee and the community that he or she uh, is arriving in. And I think also one of the key points you were saying is, is making sure that we manage expectations as to what will come to avoid uh, disappointment, but also um, the undermining of a trust relationship um, with uh, both the reintegration partners, but also any kind of communication that may happen to those who are still in the, in the destination country. Um, uh, and with that, I mean, we'll come back to you, uh, Hajaj, a bit later to talk about what you do concretely. But let me now uh, briefly turn also to Peter Nealen. Peter Nealen, thank you very much uh, for joining us. You're a senior program manager at the European Return and Reintegration Network, also known as ERIN. And so from within that position, Peter, you have actually really good uh, perspective uh, on how, um, yeah, both the political commitments, but also some of the operational developments have been unfolding in Europe when it comes to integration programs. And so what we wanted to discuss with you is how you've seen this kind of interest and commitment to uh, pre-departure counselling uh, evolve over time in Europe. Um, do you see that there's more and more programmes investing in this, given this a priority? But we also know that reintegration programmes in Europe tend to differ quite in terms of what they do and how they do it. So maybe also some uh, insights in that would be great. Thank you. Well, Hannah, thank you very much. Um, first of all, thank you very much for taking this initiative. I think return counseling is indeed a very important topic of the, let's say, the whole return endeavor. And I think it's very fitting that you first gave the floor to the reintegration partners on the other side, because basically that are the organizations that are faced with the quality of the work that we do on our side. So I think in terms of setting the scene, it, 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 it couldn't uh, go off to a better start. Now, answering to your, your, your question on, on basically... Um, Return counselling in different member states. It's it's clearly that that return counselling is a topic everywhere. But basically, against against quite an interesting um, uh, background because on the one hand you have what I can call a, a standardization almost in the working agenda and the different challenges that are um, that are tackled in different member states, but then in very very different uh, settings, in very different organisational settings. So. I'll, I'll try to explain. If, if we go back to the beginning, I think the first focus of return was basically on the process, how to make sure that the return happens as quick and as effective as possible. But after a while, and I think involvement of NGOs like Caritas and others have a lot to do with that, basically the person moved more and more to the center of the stage. And, and that is not because that sounds nice, but there was an increased awareness, increasing awareness that the process does not work if you do not connect it with the person, if the process goes too quick and doesn't respect the, the, the mental speed of a person in preparation of return, it won't work. If the process does not deal with the worries and the doubts, it will not work. People deconnect. And, and to me, this is a bit where, where the, the whole um, a topic of return counseling started gaining uh, importance. And in, in the first instance, I think that the discussion was very much focused on structures. So how do you organize your counseling? And there are a lot of differences. Some uh, do it via NGOs, other countries organize counseling in direct management. Some see it as part of social work, other have independent separate structures. There have been heated debates on up to what extent do you counsel people uh, in an asylum process before there is a decision. Do you do that? Yes or no? I mean, we, but, but all through these discussions, I think after a while, it settled in a sort of acceptance that in the end, most probably there is not a silver bullet and all different options have their pro and cons, um, but, but there is not that one single approach that works best. And, and I think that, that that's important, that acceptance like, okay, there are different processes, different settings, they have their pros and cons, and, and there is not a ideal um, uh, counseling set. Even if there would be, then again, I think structures are just uh, difficult to change, and they're often rooted in how you organize your asylum reception. Uh, they are rooted in political ideological preferences, so, so difficult to change anyway. Now, based on that, uh, increased awareness that structures are not key, but that in all these different structures, counselors face very similar challenges. So rather than focus on the structures, there is no ideal structure, let's focus on these challenges and develop appropriate support tools for counselors. And there, I think there are three challenges or, or priorities that 
I think now take center stage in this in this EU agenda that I would that I would like to briefly um, uh, highlight or elaborate on. And the first one, the first one is a focus on skills and competences that are generic to all settings. I mean, a counselor has to, and that are just examples, has to find ways to detect and, and then maybe handle resistance and, and reluctance, because basically you give a message that people generally do not want to hear. But also how to deal with stress that is related to insecure stay. Uh, we all know the number of days in between a negative decision on your asylum claim and the moment that you have to leave an asylum reception center is very short. How, how, how to deal with that? How to, how to go about that? So, so I think th there is a kind of recognition that return counseling is a métier à part, if you want. It's a specific uh, uh, a specific way, a specific form of, of social uh, work that deserves its own um, uh, answers. And that is something that you see also clearly reflected in the AVRR uh, strategy that the Commission published a year ago, where the importance of return counselling and the need to support return counselling is clearly highlighted. The second challenge is uh, how to develop tools that bridge the knowledge gap between a counsellor and a returnee. Again, normally in social work, the social worker has the knowledge advantage. They know the rules and, 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 and the setting and whatever. Not so with return counseling, because counselors do not know how it is to live in the countries of return. They even don't know how it is to live in irregular stay, basically. So there is an enormous knowledge gap. I think that there, uh, the last two years saw a rise in, in different digital uh, platforms and digital ideas on how to connect return and reintegration counselors and you see it popping up everywhere these these different ideas projects ways to connect return and reintegration um, uh, counselors and i think still has to kind of like crystallize out what, what works and what doesn't but i think that that is a very very interesting um, uh, uh, dynamic part of what you see happening in in return um, uh, counseling and then the last very briefly uh, challenge that i see emerging it's a challenge that is identified but not yet really uh, tackled although it is omnipresent in every counseling uh, setting and that's the double of conflicting role of a return counselor on the one hand they have to build the trust relationship they have to build a safe environment with with persons to talk about return on the other hand they feel the pressure up to a certain extent implicitly or explicitly from their political or, or organizational constituency, basically to make people return. As always, with return, the first question uh, they're asked is, how many? And this is this is a kind of role stress that creeps in and that potentially jeopardizes uh, uh, effectiveness of counseling. So that is a bit of a challenge where we have to find ways around and maybe find other ways of defining successful counseling. And I wanted to make this point or raise this third challenge, because for me, that has a clear link with the, the work basically that we did together, Erin and MPI in the field of quality monitoring, identifying the right indicators that indicate up to what extent good quality um, has an impact on the sustainability of return. So maybe not only on the figures, maybe not even on the uh, eventual figures, but on the sustainability, on the outcomes of return, could be one of the ways of alleviating this, um, uh, this role stress. So in short, very different uh, landscape, but there is a kind of standard working agenda emerging. And the, the really interesting and nice thing is that shared by all member states that, that, that gives the possibility to work together on things and to cooperate operationally. Thank you very much, Peter, uh, for outlining. I think, first of all, maybe that also that shift towards a focus on return and then really thinking through how to focus more on integration and also that, that trajectory, as you say, uh, that's closer or at least takes into account also the journey that the returnee goes through and the challenges that you've outlined in relation to uh, pre-departure counselling and, and yeah, your last point about the importance on checking how um, yeah, an investment in pre-departure counselling, a greater commitment to it, a diversification of practices may result uh, in a particular reintegration process and, and successes. And uh, talking about the diversity and, and some of the emerging practices, I would like to now uh, turn to Bettina Genmechu. She's the head of the Asylum Return Reintegration and Counselling uh, uh, Unit at the Danish Refugee Council. And so Bettina, um, 
it was already briefly referred to also by Hajaj in terms of connecting these three uh, parties that are really so crucial, um, the returnee, the council and the service partner in the country. Uh, and so um, from the, the English Refugee Council, you have started to really experiment, explore different ways to do that and uh, to translate this kind of broader growing political commitment that we talked about and that Peter also talked about into practice. So could you tell me a bit more about these innovative virtual exchanges that you engage in at the pre-departure phase and, and what were some of the reasons for um, setting this up? Thank you. Yes, definitely. Uh, I'd like to do that and, and thank you for inviting me to do so. Um, uh, we are in the Danish Refugee Council, a private humanitarian organization and have provided impartial return counseling um, to rejected asylum seekers for many years. And over the past years, uh, in-kind reintegration support through local partners have become increasingly possible um, for those having to return from Denmark. And of course, that's a very important element in our return counseling. Um, we do offer our counseling to, to all rejected asylum seekers who must return, whether they want to or whether they are to be forcefully deported. And, and the purpose of our counseling is that uh, they are able to have all the information that they need so they can make a decision to themselves. And if they decide to return, of course, also to focus on the reintegration phase. Um, because only those who decide to return uh, voluntarily, voluntarily from, from Denmark can get uh, reintegration support. Um, and in our counseling, we always give the possibility to speak virtually with the local reintegration partner. And the reason is that, that those who are not clarified about whether they want to return have the opportunity to ask uh, questions, discuss options, um, so that they can better be able to make a decision themselves about their future. Um, and, and those who won't know that they want to return can maybe start the process of speaking about uh, what possibilities they have to use the reintegration support. Now, the reason that we started uh, offering the, what we call tripartite meetings, that is meetings between the returnee, central returnee, the reintegration partner and the DRC counselor has to do with the nature of the Danish reintegration support. Um, in Denmark, if you get support through a local partner, you only get in-kind support, no cash is offered. And for those um, getting the reintegration support, uh, they have to develop a reintegration plan after return. They have to make a budget that must be in, uh, approved by the Danish authorities. And we could see very early on from, from our first cases that often the process after return until the reintegration plan was approved was lengthy, sometimes up to six months before they got started. Um, and the reason for this are many, of course, but often the returnee was not able to, to kind of visualize what return would be like. Um, so they changed their plans several times before finally settling on something. And with no cash support, that's quite a big challenge. So we decided to start a, a pilot project uh, with some of our reintegration partners um, where we'd have, we would have these uh, tripartite meetings. Um, and, and the purpose was to get the returnee to start thinking about the reintegration activities in advance of return and to discuss and explore uh, possible ideas with the partner in order to, to speed up the process once they got back. So what we have learned and, and why we now um, offer these meetings more systematically is that it's a way of uh, managing information. The counselor will prepare the returnee before the meeting with the partner to make sure that they address all the relevant important and important questions. And, and the, the council will also help ask some of the difficult questions if necessary. Um, and after the meeting, they will debrief with the returnee and address possible new questions. And then they make a plan together on the onwards process. Um, and, and the council will of course make sure that the returnee feels informed and involved. And they may have additional uh, tripartite meetings after this first. Uh, it's also a handheld process that supports the returnee we try to follow um, the returnee with the same counselor from, from the very first meeting until they return. And we try uh, whenever possible to have somebody who speaks their language, or at least who knows uh, the country they're returning to, of course, from the counselor's uh, view, not because they've necessarily have been there. Um, and then it's a way of building trust and relations and of managing expectations. 
Um, and, and especially it gives the local partner uh, a possibility uh, to explain about the experiences uh, they have working with returnees um, and, and what they are able to support with after return. Um, and it also helps initiate the thoughts about the, the reintegration plan uh, by looking at what the returnee, uh, what kind of skills he or she has, what the needs are, the competencies and, and the wishes for the future. Um, and we find that it's a more efficient process because if, for example, the, the returnee have a concrete business idea for reintegration at the first meeting, then the counselor or the local partner may ask them to explore other opportunities or to look into uh, prices, location, etc. Um, but we find that it speeds up the process and it, it empowers and gives the returnee ownership over the business idea and, and the reintegration plan. Um, I just want to give you um, two examples of, of why we believe that, that these virtual uh, tripartite uh, counseling meetings are valuable for, for the sustainable reintegration process. And the first um, concerns uh, a detained Moroccan uh, rejected asylum seekers. Um, I will call him Hussein, just to make it easier. Um, he had uh, been in Europe for the past six years and was not sure whether he wanted to cooperate about his return. And he had not told his family back home about the situation. So our counselor went to the detention center to meet him and to talk about the situation. Um, they discussed the different options and strategies and, and also, of course, uh, returning voluntarily with reintegration support. And during this meeting, um, the counselor gave him the opportunity to speak with a local partner. Of course, the counselor had arranged already before with a local partner who was standing by in case he wanted to speak. Um, so he agreed to do so, and he had a good conversation with the social worker in Morocco, um, who explained about the situation and the possibilities and, and urged him to, to contact his family, to tell them about his return, but also to tell them they, they could contact the organization if they wanted to, to hear more about the, the process and, and if they had any questions. Um, and after the meeting, he wasn't still sure whether he wanted to, to cooperate. But the next day, he, he called uh, the counselor to say that he had spoken to his family and, and they had actually spoken to the organization and, uh, and that he was now will, willing to, to return. Um, and we heard from the organization that the family had contacted them and they were happy to have him return. And, and they also wanted to, to engage, if possible, in, in the, the process of uh, uh, the reintegration when he came back. So we are. We're not sure that he would have made that decision to return voluntarily had it not been for the, for the uh, talk and the meeting with the local partner. And, and that's often um, how we feel that, that people are insecure, but, but once they meet and they get a face and they get to speak with the partner, it often changes. Um, and now the other example is uh, an ex example of a rejected asylum seeker from Thailand, um, I call her Gigi. Um, she had several conversations with the DRC Council before return, and she had two um, meetings, tripartite meetings, where we also participated um, to discuss the reintegration plan. Um, she's the sole provider um, of her mother and of her young son, so it was very important for her to get started very soon after return. Um, she decided quickly that she wanted to get vocational training to learn uh, about nail care and painting and decorating nails. Um, and at the first uh, virtual meeting with the partner, they exchanged information, um, and that's often something that they do because then it's possible for, for uh, the returnee to contact the partner um, whenever there's a question and if, if the RC counselor is not available. Um, so she did so several times with the partner and she came back in March uh, last year and immediately caught up with the, with the social worker uh, whom she had been speaking with uh, virtually. Um, and, and because they had talked so much about her plans within a, a few days, they had prepared the plan and it, uh, it was sent for assessment um, to, um, to the Danish authorities uh, and the whole process took less than 10 days. So she was able to start very fast with her process and, and uh, support her family. Um, and, uh, and Leah, who was supposed to give uh, this presentation instead of me, she met her just last week in Thailand, uh, where she was on a mission. Um, and and um, she was telling her how she was doing fine and uh, 
how her business was doing really good. Uh, but most importantly, that, that after coming back and receiving the support, that she had, get, she had gained higher expectations uh, of life. Um, and that's very positive. She's still in contact with, with the social worker who, who received her and who helped her. Um, and they have a very good relation based on trust and respect and, and equality. So this might still have developed irrespective of, of, the, pre, uh, of the meetings that they had while she was still in Denmark, but, uh, but the local partner in Thailand, and, and we are quite convinced that, uh, that the first seeds of, of, um, of a good relation started at that first uh, virtual meeting that they had um, back in Denmark. Thank you. Thank you. Also for those uh, concrete examples, uh, I think it connects also quite nice, nicely with what Hajaj had said at the beginning and the, the importance of on one hand properly informing or uh, really unpicking uh, and making it clearer what kind of context that they're returning to. And you were also alluding to how important this is in terms of establishing that, that first um, yeah, seeds of trust in the, in the relationship which is with the reintegration partner, which is so integral. Uh, and I think also your examples of how that then uh, resulted in uh, persons ultimately do, do taking the, the decision to return, but also uh, the examples you gave in terms of the impact over Sam, I think connect nicely also what Peter was saying, the importance of following up, what it means in terms of the impact when we do invest the time, as you said, early on in the pre-departure phase with those returnees, what it means for them uh, and their journey in the months and years ahead. So, um, but let me now turn to uh, Lucia Salgado. She's a, an associate policy analyst with us at MPI Europe. And Lucia, you've been in your research exploring how to leverage pre-departure counseling for sustainable reintegration. And that was a, uh, a key question that we explored with our partners at Erin and really also this, this question, how can it also maybe strengthen the links, uh, links between the pre-departure and, and post-arrival phases, but also the actors that are so crucial for both of those stages. And so we've already heard um, from Bettina how, you know, the potential of, of virtual counseling, but uh, we'd also like to hear a bit more from you if in your research you found any other promising approaches that you would like to share uh, with us and the audience. Thank you. Yes, thank you very much, Hane, and good afternoon all. And yeah, I think we have discussed why pre-departure counseling is so important for sustainable reintegration and also we have touched upon information sharing right and how this aspect that is sometimes overlooked is really important information sharing between actors in destination countries and actors in origin countries and pre-departure information sharing doesn't involve only the information that returnees receive but also the information that counselors themselves collect about the returnee before departure, for instance, about their vulnerabilities or immediate needs, and that they share with service partners before they return, so that service partners in the ground can prepare in advance and deliver their integration support swiftly after their arrival. So the virtual counseling that we were talking about already is an approach that brings together returning migrants in host countries and partners in origin countries. And I would like to signal three other main approaches that can strengthen information sharing and really improve the chances of sustainable reintegration. The first one is to improve the information available to counselors, also building on what Peter was saying, through increased exchanges with partners. So counselors in Europe usually rely on country fact sheets and written material to learn about the conditions in different countries of origin and the support available. But of course, they can struggle to navigate all this available information and to really understand what is happening on the ground. So to address this, for example, the German development agency GIZ, as part of our reintegration program, they launched in 2017 the so-called reintegration scouts. What are these scouts? It's a team that is based in Germany in different counseling centers, and they connect counselors in Germany with actors in the countries of origin. So when counselors in Germany have a specific questions, even very particular ones, such as what are the educational opportunities available in a very specific town where the migrant is returning, they can then submit this question to the scout who in turn liaise with focal points in countries of origin to obtain this very specific information. And of course, in this respect, it's also worth mentioning the initiative launched by Erin Talk to Connect last year, which also brings together return counselors and service partners in countries of origin through monthly virtual sessions where they discuss the realities on the ground. 
A second key approach that I encountered in my research is to build quality checks along the information exchange continuum. Because of course, one thing is to share information, but how to ensure that the information is really accurate and is of quality is another thing. So this can be done, for example, by reviewing the information that counselors collect before this is shared with partners on the ground. And this is done in Austria, where Caritas reviews the information that counselors from the government collect about the returnees, especially that related to vulnerabilities, and ask for additional information when they think this is not sufficient, and then they share it with partners on the ground. And also um, this sort of quality checks or reviewing stages can also make sure that returnees also receive appropriate guidance at the pre-departure stage. I think this also builds a little bit with what Bettina was mentioning. And in Greece, for example, IOM, as also does the Danish Refugee Council, in Greece, uh, IOM develops a reintegration plan already at the pre-departure stage. And this reintegration plan is shared with the partners already before departure so that they can assess the feasibility of the plan. And this way, they diminish the risks of unrealistic expectations among returnees. So yeah, I think this is a very similar approach with uh, what Bettina was already mentioning. And lastly, I would like to mention a key development in the field that holds really a lot of potential to strengthen information sharing at the pre-departure stage and improve the chances of sustainable reintegration, which is the increasing use of online case management tools. We have seen in Europe in the last year the expansion of different online case management tools. Um, the European Commission in 2019, I think it was, they developed the RIAD tool in cooperation with Erin and Ferasil from the Belgian government. We see it is an online platform that is available to member states authorities, but also service partners in origin countries. And they can directly input data into the platform and exchange quickly information about the returnees and the reintegration process. And IOM also has a similar internal case management system called MIMOSA, where IOM missions in the field and IOM missions in host countries can also exchange information about the returnee and, and the reintegration process. And of course, these sort of online tools compared to sharing information via email, for example, it makes communications much more efficient, uh, they are faster, and also hold a lot of other potentials, such as improving, for instance, data protection when this is embedded into the system, or even improving monitoring and evaluation in general in reintegration programs, given that there is a lot of data that is inputted into the system. But at the same time, these tools are in process of expansion now. It's sort of a recent development uh, that is now getting traction. And policymakers still need to address some key questions in the coming year, such as how to ensure that the information that is inputted into these platforms is really of quality, as I was mentioning before, or how to make sure that uh, partners in the countries of origin have enough internet access, because this can be a challenge uh, in some local context. I was talking with, yeah, a partner in Ethiopia, which mentioned that it is really a problem for them to uh, have enough internet access to, to use these tools. On even how to ensure the compatibility between these different online case management tools that are growing in Europe, uh, because of course, if um, they are compatible, we will make sure that we have comparable data and global learning. I think I will stop here, uh, but I will be happy to answer any questions of the audience later. Thank you. Thank you very much, Lucia, uh, for yeah, uh, outlining these kind of three interesting developments in terms of making sure uh, the right information is available, the quality checks that you said, and also um, this um, very interesting development when it comes to online case management tools and the kind of possibilities these um, will offer in, in maybe the years to come. And with that, I'm uh, returning to uh, Hajaj, for those who um, joined more recently at, on the webinar, um, Hajaj Mustafa is a program executive at the reintegration program of the European Technology and Training Center, the ETC. So Hajaj, we, we talked a bit earlier, and thanks again for outlining what happens when the um, yeah, returnees are not properly counseled. But let's maybe turn now to what it is that you and your team do in order to really smoothen that transition between the pre-departure and post-arrival phase. Um, could you explain how you do that? What are some of the advantages? And then maybe to connect with, with one of the final points that Lucia was making about you know, making sure that 
post-arrival reintegration partners have the rights and, and the, much, the, the information that's most relevant um, to um, their, their services that they're uh, operating and also to make sure that it's the most up-to-date and recent information. Uh, what, in your opinion, what personal information is, is really key, crucial and, and what sometimes goes missing and, and with what result? Thank you very much. Okay, uh, <clears throat> thank you very much again. And uh, really this topic is very interesting, especially for uh, as ETTC as on daily basis, we are have a, in connection with the returnee. So the link between uh, pre-departure and post-arrival is very important that, uh, the, for example, the counselors, even in the host country and the country of origin to link these two issues. So regarding the, uh, uh, as you know, uh, the, the, the pre-departure, uh, uh, before pre-departure, as I mentioned before, that if you have a sufficient information uh, for returning, it should be very uh, uh, smoothly, the, the work is going very well. So always uh, the, the, the advantage of uh, what uh, the returnee, uh, for example, after uh, return, uh, if they are well prepared, so it means that the returnee, they gain sufficient information without any problems. They have clear information. This is one. And then they will, uh, they will have uh, easy for uh, establishing a reintegration plan. And then I think uh, they will speed, uh, and as you know, the rumors among the returnee, always it will go very soon. So if someone, they have a smooth counseling process after arrival to the ATTC and uh, they connect with the ATTC. So it means that ATTC, they have a pre-departure information about this returnee. So they know most of uh, information about the return. So it means that, for example, if I will talk to you, so you after return, this is the ATTC procedures. So after we will uh, meet uh, face to face with each others. So it means, okay, please stop. We talk about this topic. This is like this when before departure. So it means that uh, the, 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 we cannot waste of the time. So always the speed of the counseling and the process of reintegration, it will go very smoothly. And these rumors, it will uh, go to other returnee outside the country. And the returnee, they will trust that is, there is a service provider that they will trust uh, that they have, uh, for example, a reintegration program that they will uh, implement in a very uh, active way. And when we will meet after arrival, the returnee, we know we have information about the skills, about everything. So it means for us, it is easily uh, to deal with it. And we will be very well prepared in order if he or she have a questions especially for the families who they have a kids for education and of course for, for the other returnees who they have a medical process. So it means we are well prepared and the returnee, they will trust us that we are providing the sufficient services for uh, returnee. And then uh, when we have the link between pre-departure and post-arrival, so we will avoid the incorrect information among the three uh, actors, uh, caseworkers in host country, the returnee and the service provider. So we will avoid the incorrect, uh, even the returnee will uh, avoid the incorrect information. They cannot say that in country of host country, they said like this and after the arrival, they will say like this. For us, regarding the personal information that's important, just I would like, I have my own database for IRIM program. Uh, always we will indicate, okay, uh, when they will send a document, we will indicate, okay, not arrived, under process, completed. So we'll have uh, our database. If now uh, we, will, we will have a lot of not arrived cases indicated in our database. Why? Because we don't have sufficient information in the application form. No contact number, not emails. So it means the returnee, we cannot contact the returnee and the returnee, they lost our uh, data. So it means in this gap, the returnee, they didn't 
believe, for example, they didn't believe that after return they got as services. So the other returnee, they will contact them. They will say, we didn't get any services uh, from the ATTC. They are not saying the truth. So I think, uh, and sometimes we will receive uh, some cases, they didn't inform us before that they have, for example, mental health issue. Uh, so at the first uh, counseling, it is not easy that you are not expected that we will deal with such kind, for example. At least we should arrange the uh, our social workers and we will uh, arrange properly for such kind of things. And sometimes, again, uh, they didn't, uh, in the application forum, they didn't get, uh, indicate the skills, the trainings, who they are attended. And even for the kids, they didn't indicate the certificates for the, the, the kids because uh, it is very important for us, for example, especially if they have a kids, to ask them that they will bring the certificate with them in order to adjust in a country of origin in our Ministry of Education. So there is sometimes the gap in the information. It is, if, the, if there is a gap in information, so it means that uh, the service provider will face a lot of difficulty and the program, it will be not sustainable. If a lot of people, they will decide to return, maybe most of them, they will refuse to not return because uh, they will uh, find that there is untrust rumors program that it would be implemented between uh, the ETTC and the member uh, states. And sometimes, uh, for example, uh, the, the widow-headed family, they, we don't have uh, a, a sufficient information uh, before departure. So again and again, it is, there is a lot of information that I think it is very important for ETTC as a service provider to have before uh, pre-departure. So again, linking post-arrival and pre-departure is very important. This should be happen uh, within the three actors uh, to uh, fill the main challenges and gaps. It will happen uh, especially before uh, departure. And maybe sometimes we have some special cases that it needs to refer to other, uh, for example, uh, to health department, to the, they need a medical uh, issue. So I think it is important to share the uh, address of the medicines before departure with us in order to arrange and to make sure that this medicine is available in the country of origin. Because we have a lot of cases that uh, they are using some medicine maybe in the host country available in the country of origin, not available. So in order to make sure, I think sharing this information for us as a personal uh, views for uh, many years that I have worked with the returnees. I think this all information is very uh, important important for the sustainability of the uh, program. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much for outlining that. That's really interesting. Um, and I see that in the meantime, there's a, a number of questions that have been posted in the Q&A and, and chat uh, function. So uh, yes, to uh, all those who've uh, been joining us for this discussion, if you have particular questions, do raise them there and we'll try to address them within the time that we have available. Um, and so maybe with that, I'll briefly turn to, to Peter in the first instance. Uh, Peter, and then let me cry and combine uh, um, two, two questions. So on the one hand, so there's several uh, participants asking about, of course, in what kind of context can we apply these kind of uh, pre-departure counseling setups and uh, and how easily is it done and with what effect so for, for one thing um, there's a question also about how applicable are the discussions that we have the value that we discussed about pre-departure counseling also applicable in the kind of um, pre-forced return spaces so when the question of whether or not to return is no longer on the table but it's more an issue of reintegration and another question that asks, and I know Erin is also working on that, to what extent there are also practices in developing in terms of not only engaging with migrants who are in detention centers, um, but also those who, who still live in the community. But maybe on that, we need to be a bit short because then I want to turn to Bettina. Thank you. 
Yeah, thank you, Anna. But, but I think my answer can can be short. I think basically reflecting what I what I said before, um, difference. Um, settings structures can be different and there is an obvious difference in between people in detention and and people living in communities people with a return decision removal decision and people who do not yet have that decision the the scope of possibilities is obviously way more narrow in, in detention than outside uh, detention. There is the issue of speed that plays an important role with people who got a removal decision because they have to act basically quickly. Um, but, but all through these different uh, settings remains the skills and the competences, how to deal with resistance, how to try to engage somebody in a meaningful discussion about return, about options. I mean, you need the same skills and competence, maybe in a different extent, but you need them in the different uh, settings. And, and, and the, 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 the tools, these platforms, and we talked about a few on, on how to make the bridge between here and there, return counselor, reintegration counselor, about what is possible, not possible, on, on the other side could just help that little bit in establishing trust and have a meaningful uh, discussion. So basically, and, and, and there again, um, I see the added value of what's, what's ongoing now. I think after many, many discussions about settings, we, we came to the conclusion we have to work on, on, on tools, on instruments that can support a counselor in whatever setting he or she works. And every setting will come with his own possibilities and, and limitations. Maybe last word, um, because we did not yet talk about that, but what I consider a very important and, and very positive evolution uh, is that more and more also people who decide to who decide to our return out of detention can make use of reintegration assistance. And there has been a bit of a no-go for, for, for many years, but I think now this starts to change, and I consider that a very um, a positive evolution also for counselors, because Basically, I mean, if you return from a detention center, you can't choose your own moment. You, you, you're not owner of your decision. And these people generally are more vulnerable than the ones we tend to focus most on in the voluntary um, return. But that was just a short sidestep. Thank you, Peter. And can I just quickly push you on the question in terms of how to reach out to um, yeah, those who are, for example, subject to a removal decision, but haven't made that decision, if you can briefly outline um some of the measures that Aaron has taken on uh, there in that respect such as reach out um well there I guess you point out to the do you point to the reach out project that Erin has um yeah uh, indeed yeah yeah you can briefly allude because yeah. that's the question that was posed in the chat that um yeah how do you reach those who haven't actually made that step to talk to a potential counselor or who are in a detention center awaiting voluntary return thanks but that's that's really interesting in in a way, and I think reach out broke open the the the, the scope as 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 we always worked in detention centers, open uh, reception facilities, and whatever. The the question basically that was raised in that in that project is. Up to what extent do you talk to people who who just arrived, who are who are on on the way through Europe? So these these uh, transit migrants that you find different uh, hotspots where basically they 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 um, they make their way through. Um, uh, through Europe. Objective was to, to find meaningful ways of engaging with these people. And of course, when you're in that stage of your migration uh, project, so to say, uh, you will not be in the mood for a long and extensive discussion on the possibility of return or the, the perspective of return. And that transpired then into a method of, of what colleagues who implemented the project call micro-counseling. So how can you get the most out of your 30-second, 60-second kind of like meeting that you have with, 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 with people. How can you get something out of it? Is this about convincing? No. Is this about uh, persuading people? No, but maybe just about informing and just like get the message across. Look, I mean, whatever you do, it's it's your own choice, but but know that there's always a ways back and that we can help you with, with, with that. Um, and, and I think it was a very interesting example on, on, on how um, uh, counseling can be uh, applied in, in different um, uh, settings, but then you have to adapt it basically on the scope of the possibilities that you have. Thank you very much, Peter. Um, let me now turn to Bettina. Bettina, there's a number of questions um, also in relation to the process that you have outlined, um, a bit similar to what I asked Peter in the sense, do you also work with those outside of, of 
particular centers. Maybe also very briefly that we can then focus on, on, on the Peter Parter counseling itself. So questions about, yeah, um, you know, how different is it when um, you're trying to convince somebody who may still have a perspective within Europe or not? I mean, that kind of phase that they're in. And there's also a question about what, if, I mean, in terms of um, do you have examples of, of yeah, that kind of connection breaking down between the counsellor and how to address that? Because that's an important one. So let me um, yeah, ask you first those questions. Thanks very much. And then I'll reach out to Hajaj in relation to the Indian question and the relevance of Peter Parcher counselling within a particular country, which is an interesting one. Thank you. Thank you, Hannah. I'll, I'll try to remember all of them. Um, but, but first of all, I'll, I'll say that, that we are never there to convince people to leave. Um, and that's the whole point of impartial counseling. It's, 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 it's not our job to tell people what they should do and what they shouldn't do. In our counseling, we very much have focus on, individ on the individual that we are counseling. And, and it's, up, uh, it's, it's up to them to make a decision about their future. So we will. So to say, sit on the same side of the table as them and look at the future together with them and look at the different options and be sort of a sparring partner when they say, what if I do A, B, C, D? But we will look at the future and, and returning voluntarily is, is one of the possibilities that we're looking at. But it could also be uh, staying irregularly in Denmark um, if they're not in detention center. Um, so, so it's 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 very much about taking a point of departure in their situation and what their options are. And and very often when we meet somebody in our counselling, they don't want to return. They want to explore whether there are any possibilities at all to remain in Denmark or in Europe. Um, and and we have uh, in our department we have a team of of lawyers. Uh, who will provide the legal counseling, who will look into whether there are anything at all to do, whether they had the right decision, um, or whether they can apply for a humanitarian permit, a work permit, or whatever. So it's very often important to close down all the possible scenarios in Denmark and in Europe before they can do anything. Um, so, so they might start uh, with, with us, return counseling, and then go to a lawyer, and then they come back when they find out. Um, and I think that also helped a little bit with the, with the, with the credibility and, and that we really don't have uh, an opinion about whether they should return or not, um, that, that we are able to look at that and, 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 uh, and that we have colleagues who can look at, at the options of staying in, in Denmark. Uh, like Peter was saying, of course, the, the different settings uh, make it easier or, or more difficult to, to provide counseling. In, in a detention center, we come once and then we can... Uh, a few times come more or have uh, conversations on phone. Whereas in the offices that we have at, at the departure centers, people can come by uh, every day and, and ask new questions. So it's very different types of, of counseling. And, and, uh, and often when people are detained, uh, if they have a, a nationality that can actually be deported from Denmark, there's a, a very limited uh, time uh, to, to have talks. And that puts a pressure on, on the individual and on the council as well. Um, but, but we also meet uh, people who are not in the center, who are living irregularly in Denmark. Uh, and that's, that's often through uh, word of mouth from people who uh, have received counseling and, and, uh, and who will spread the word that there is uh, counseling to, to, to have, but also reintegration support. And that may make a difference to, to, to some people. Uh, we saw a few years ago that we had one Jordanian in our counseling and, and uh, we got a partner in, in Jordan. And all of a sudden we had uh, five or six who were living regularly in Denmark, but who heard about the possibility of, of getting support and who then contacted us for, for counseling. Um, then there was a question about whether if, if the relation between the counselor and the returnee uh, or the asylum seeker breaks down, is that correct? Well, there's more a question about um, uh, in terms of your successes in, in terms of maintaining that relationship over time. But I think you've outlined that already, that this is uh, not in itself, of course, the objective, but it's an important vehicle and that the way in which you try to uh, generate a relationship with, of trust with the, the potential returnee helps you. But I don't know if you wanted to add anything to that. No, I don't know. I think, I mean, it, that's fine. 
Thank you. Okay, before I turn to uh, uh, Hajach, I just wanted to ask Lucia uh, just one more additional question. Um, so there's a question about um, yeah the the role that uh, the pre-departure uh, counselling may a play in terms of, for example, developing a reintegration plan. How integral do you think that is, uh, or do you think, as a, as a question was asked, this is something more for service providers after return? And also in the chat, there's a, a discussion there also as to what that's really integral uh, at that moment in time. I would like to hear your, your view on these things. Thank you very much, Hane, and also to the person that asked this question. And it's indeed a very interesting one because I think there is not a consensus in the fields from the interviews that I've had of whether it's a good idea to develop a business plan before departure. Because on the one hand, I've heard from service partners on the ground that developing a business plan can make the returnee start thinking about the reintegration process, start having ideas, and this can actually speed up the process when they return because they already have this uh, plan developed. The problem is that many times it's very difficult to know about the realities on the ground when you are not there. And counselors in Europe, as I was mentioning, many times they don't really know exactly if a plan is feasible, if not, uh, what are the, for instance, businesses that work better in an area. So there is also a challenge in that sense. And other service partners, for instance, ones in Ethiopia were mentioning like, no, we prefer to do this after arrival because we know um, the realities on the ground. We know what's, what business work and what business don't work. So I think it is a tricky question. I will say that developing the business plan prior to departure has advantages and can speed up the process but only if there is some sort of quality check, as I was mentioning, if the partners can confirm that this plan work, can work on the grounds, that is feasible. I think in that case, it's a really good idea to develop it before departure and avoiding at the same time unrealistic expectations. Thank you very much, uh, Lucia. Uh, yeah, I think, and I just wanted to flag to everybody listening in um, some really interesting conversations and uh, experiences shared in the chat and the Q&A uh, function. Um, just let me now uh, turn to Hajaj. Um, and just wanted to say, I mean, I think it's been interesting. I mean, there's been questions raised about, for example, uh, is this applicable reintegration support in a pre-forced uh, pre to return uh, phase? How valuable or, or relevant can it be? I mean, we had a discussion about that, but there's now also a question about, um, you know, should this be available uh, regardless of the country origin? So for all of those who return, uh, Hadad, I think that's one question. But there's also a question, is this relevant within, um, within the country if there's a reintegration or, or uh, those kind of... So I, I would like to hear uh, your views on, on that. Thank you very much. Sorry, I didn't get the question very well. Could you just briefly uh, repeat because the sound is not... Uh, I get... The question exactly yeah sorry um so the question is um when we yeah when we one of the things that that people have posted is, is that uh, reintegration support is not available for all of those people who return so you as well as the ettc have to deal with as you said very different reintegration programs depending on on the country sending them back uh, so the question is do you see this value uh, uh yeah applicable independent of where you come from and also what about any kind of more kind of regional or local return uh, processes again is there uh, a role to play for Peter Parker. Okay. Thank, Thank you. you very much for the question. As you know, in our uh, most of the programs, uh, especially under the IRIM program, uh, we are dealing uh, with the member states uh, and they are referring the returnees. So it means before departure, they will refer the cases, the information for returnee, and then we will meet with the returnee and we will support the returnee. And of course, uh, we cannot support any returnee if they are not applicable by the member state, but we have some other programs uh, with the GIZ, for example, for some other returnee who they are already returned and they didn't get support uh, from other uh, international NGO, other places. So uh, we will refer to GMANC and then uh, we will try to support them. Of course, it is not for easy for us 
some returnee who they are returning and they didn't get support. But again, we will be very grateful to support all the returnee. So because there is, uh, if someone they didn't get support, maybe it will affect for the integration program that they will again communicate with the other returnee that still they didn't return. And maybe they will uh, send a message that there is not uh, uh, support available for returnee. So again, as you know, uh, we will obligate that to support the returnee who they are eligible by the member status, they will refer to ETTC. But again, always we will try uh, if the returnee, they will come to ETTC and visit ETTC. If he or she is not eligible, ETTC try to refer to some other places, um, some other institutions, or to guide them for the, some ministers who they are giving them the loan or the grant. So it means we will try to do our role and at least uh, to do some uh, sufficient, uh, inf to give some sufficient information or support to returnee. So this is very brief uh, regarding answering your question. Thank you very much, I think that's really uh, um, interesting. Yeah, and apologies, I realized that not everybody can <laughs> read whatever other people ask in a question, but there were some really uh, interesting questions being raised there. Um, I just wanted to also um, check um, whether, yeah, how, I mean, there's also some questions about um, further plans um, in the future when it comes to um, yeah, further developing these Peter Parenter counseling uh, programs and the like. Um, but for today, we'll close at this. We would really like to warmly thank our panelists for the, the conversation and for also responding to the many questions uh, that were raised. Um, yeah, we really thought it was an interesting moment in time, given the, the developments of return and reintegration programs on both sides of the Atlantic. There's a lot of interest in how to take this forward, what components need to be there and why. Um, I think today we've outlined the, the value of pre-departure counselling, outlined some of also the really important role it plays, both for those who return for the communities that uh, Will play an integral role in their integration but also the service partners on both sides of this trajectory uh, that play a crucial role in facilitating the reintegration in in the years and months to come and so this is very an important one and i thank our panelists for outlining some of the current practices um how it can be approved but also some of the ideas for how to take this uh, forward. And so uh, also thank you to all of you who've joined us for this conversation and for the very lively uh, conversations that I could see in the chat and the Q&A, which was really interesting. And thank you also, also many out of you out there um, who are working in this field and were posting uh, really interesting uh, reflections on that. So thank you very much. Um, the audio and the video from today's webinar will be available uh, later uh, today or soon on our website. Uh, www.migrationpolicy.org slash events. Uh, for those reporters on uh, the webinar, if you would like to follow up with any questions now in the future, you can reach out to uh, Michelle Mittestadt, who's our communications director um, at uh, 1202-266-1910 or Mittestadt at migrationpolicy.org. If you would like to receive any MPI update, do visit our website uh, where you can sign up. And as flagged, uh, do have a look at our latest um, policy brief called Leveraging Pre-Departure Counseling to Support Returning Migrants Sustainable Reintegration, which you can find on the website and written by our colleague Lucia Salgado. So with that, um, I'll close and thank you again to the panelists for joining us and uh, to our audience for uh, yeah, being here with us for this discussion. Thank you.